0: Well, then, um, joining me today is not only one of my good friends, um, what I would say is that he's one of the uh, world's leading important <laughs> figures on harm uh, reduction and all-around top bloke, Mr. Nigel Brunston.
2: <laughs> How are you, mate? Uh, um, okay. Yeah, all right. Did you like that I intro? Don't, I don't, I don't recognise that as a description of me at all. Apart from the friend bit, all right. Let, let,
0: let's yeah. let's start it from a different way then. So, okay, I know you from uh, many different guises, uh, predominantly more around the whole substance uh, substance misuse field. Um, yeah. How would you best describe yourself?
2: Um, I, I it's a question I struggle with anyway because it's the same as when people ask me what I do for a living, and I'm like, well, I've got a few different jobs and a few different ways I have of making money. So I've got a T-shirt with all the ways that I describe myself, and it's like, you know, father, husband, harm reductionist, photographer, and it's this list of ways that I would describe myself. Um, At the moment, it's more, I would say, that I'm a harm reductionist
0: and a photographer. Because um, I think there's probably a bit of activist in there as well. Yeah, I mean, I think what I would, I think w- one of the fair things to say is when I when I got involved in this whole field around substance use, uh, there wasn't, there was obviously materials online. There was obviously um, you know certain areas which um, you could get information about, but I, I quickly started to find out um, that w- that there was. Um, the same, co- same sort of characters that were coming up all the time. And uh, your name uh, was one of those that wherever I needed that kind of help and support and that link, it was there, especially for somebody who was coming into the field. Um, predominantly, I was, you know, at that stage, I was a, I was a young lad. And, um, you know, trying to learn. I always found yourself a couple of the guys that were a really um, uh, a kind of a, a centre point of bringing information together i think the question to kind of start off then is like how how and why did you get into this field
2: um the the why kind of goes back to a shiny book that i saw in a bookstore one day there was i was uh, shopping over in nottingham and i i love my books um there was a place called and they had a load of books out on the table and one of them had this beautiful holographic image on the front of it and a big e on it and it was the nick saunders book on ecstasy and i bought it because it was a really nice cover now at that stage i'd already i'd grown up a fair bit i'd i'd done all my youthful stuff um i was the guy that would help my friends I'd get the phone calls at two o'clock in the morning from people saying that they were having a bad trip. And I'd be the one that would go around and sort of like try to lift them out of the bad trip rather than it being a medical emergency kind of thing. Um, So I had this interest in drugs, but then that Nick Saunders book was really pivotal in growing this interest. And then I started, I used to work in stores, I used to work in shops, I used to run a comic shop in Birmingham. Mm. Um, uh, which one? A fantastic store. It was around the corner from the famous, from the big nostalgia and comics one. we used to sell a lot of more, a lot more indie stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I know, I know the one that you're talking about. It was, um, it was it's, it's a kind of a misspent youth in there really pretending to be superheroes. Yeah, yeah it's good. I'm, I'm yeah. with you. I'm with you.
2: Working shops, And then all that went wrong. So I started working in care, uh, started working with learning difficulties, uh, got a job in the hospital, uh, working on a medical ward. And we had this young guy brought in who had tried to kill himself with heroin. And it was a deliberate attempt to end his life. It wasn't a, an overdose in the way that we traditionally think of overdoses with heroin. And he was semi-conscious, mostly unconscious, and the medical staff basically left him to it. Um, he was screaming a lot, but they were saying that he wasn't really aware of his surroundings. Um, and after about five or six days, he came around, and he had a level of brain damage from the overdose. Uh, but chatting with him, he was like, it was it was clear he was perfectly aware of everything he'd gone through. So he'd gone through heroin withdrawal in this hospital with no support, no methadone or anything. And that made me quite angry. And I decided at that point, this is going back into the very early 90s. And I decided I, I kind of wanted to work in a needle exchange. I'd heard a bit about needle exchanges, and I kind of wanted to work in a needle exchange. And I did some other jobs, did some mental health work, um, and in my mental health work, it was, I was given all the drug related mental health uh, patients that we had. Um, and then I got a job in Burton working for a drug service and starting up the needle exchange within that drug service. And that's kind of where it, the whole substance misuse stuff kicked off. Because I, I used to, obviously, I used to read a lot. I used to read up on the, the topic, and I thought that's what everybody did. Yeah. And I suddenly became like, I, I, I like became the manager of the service at one point, and realised that most of the staff in the service didn't go and do research, didn't go and read up stuff. So, you know, I went, I went from having to um, teach myself to then having to sort of try and teach other people as well. To sort of upskill everybody. So, like,
0: yeah, I'm. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a similar kind of uh, position where you've had a sort of a an experience, which is obviously just then mm. help kind of trigger the, um, you know, the, the 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 rest of your your thinking. So, you mentioned a little about the. Um, you, you talked a bit about the the injecting side of it, and your website is like, you know, injecting. It. What's your thought?
2: What's you your
0: see,
2: I feel day. bad here because I, I, that. I started it in 2007 and the idea was, um, the original concept was that I would, when I did a needle exchange or needle supply, when I did a needle supply I would take notes mentally about why I'd given certain pieces of advice and certain pieces of equipment. And then I would write that up, anonymize it, and then time move it so i wouldn't I wouldn't release it then I would release yeah. it about a month yeah. or so later, so that it was totally unidentifiable uh, changing genders, things like that um, and the idea being that the needle exchange workers could use that information to inform their own practice. yeah it became something slightly different. it became things where I thought sort of like workshops on how to safely teach people to use crack pipes, um, how to minimise uh, withdrawal symptoms, um, little pieces of information and little pieces of opinion stuff. But I've not done anything on that website for about four or five years. <laughs> so I feel really guilty whenever anybody mentions it. And I actually, I I, taught, I put something on Facebook a couple of months ago saying, I'm going to retire it. I'm going to just take it yeah. off um i just got all these messages from people saying that they're still using it and i'm like it's insane this is this is such for me it's really basic information and really but
0: let's let, let's just let's just have a bit let's just kind of think about that when we when like sort of i i started in that field you had this huge upsurge of new workers coming in and there was there was a you know, I did feel that there was this kind of uh, invisible battle of old school, new school kind of coming in. It was the first time they injected this, you know, this forgive the pun, um, you know, a lot of money into that area. Yeah. If I asked you now, since you've retired it, how many new pieces of good guidance, let's say at your quality, has come in?
2: Uh, Well, there's hardly any bits of really good guidance of harm reduction stuff. Yeah. Um, from the UK, yeah, there's we, we've got there are some amazing harm reduction people in the UK. Most of them aren't working in harm reduction anymore because when we had the coalition government came in and they they moved over to a more recovery based agenda, and there was even talk of some people, some organisations being told that they wouldn't receive funding if they kept the term harm reduction in their title.
0: Could you just, just, just for those people who are listening in at this point, I think it's probably good to kind of just clarify some of the definitions for 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 us because we, we we'll just run away. So, I think it's, it's it's actually really good. This bit is in terms of like what would you define as harm reduction?
2: Harm, redu- harm reduction is a full spectrum of stuff. So you've sure. got from the very basic from from um, getting people into a full-on rehab service and helping them maintain abstinence is one end of harm reduction. And the other end of harm reduction, which is the end I preferred working at, is the working with people who aren't necessarily motivated or um, in a position to even consider the idea of abstinence and or who are quite happy with their, their level of drug use but just trying to make it a bit safer so that can be everything from people injecting heroin into their groin to people who are taking a whole load of mdma on a saturday and then realizing that tuesday and wednesday they're feeling really crap it's like that way of trying to mitigate and plan for that um, the suicide tuesday feeling so but harm reduction is all along that Sort of spectrum uh, is very very basic. There's a term that's um, used. It's from Chicago Recovery Alliance, and I think the Americans do harm reduction really really well because they have a real activist bent to it. And I, I much prefer the American way of doing things on this. Um, but their their term is any positive change, and so it's just any incremental positive change that helps a person. So it might be. Uh, my, one of my favourite pieces of advice when I was working in a new project would be around... We give out these little alcohol swabs. And what you find is that people will use them to clean up after they've injected. Now, alcohol will thin the blood um, on an open wound and it will cause more bleeding and more bruising. Mm. What those alcohol swabs are there for are to clean the wound, or to clean the site beforehand. So once swipe with an alcohol swab, not rubbing it around, not none of that, just one swipe. So the bulk of people use them wrong because it's such a simple, boring piece of advice. It's not like explaining to people about how hep C is going to be back for them, where you can get pure harm reduction work. You can show, you know, all of this fancy stuff about genotypes and stuff. It's a really simple, no, you just do that, mate, do it before, not after. The difference is that that piece of advice sets you up for um, people knowing that you're that you know what you're talking about. So, because I can say to you, use this before, not after. The next time you inject, you know I know what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. Is so the trust
2: is there. Yeah. Yeah, you've built up that social capital. So from. From that, and then you've also got – there's another American term of meet people where they're at, and that's a a standard in harm reduction. Mm -hmm. So you're not – and that can be physically where they're at, so going to where people are using drugs or just meeting them where they're at in their personality at the moment. So if somebody doesn't want at the moment to stop using drugs, fine. You're not going to pressure people into stopping using drugs. You're going to work with them at the stage they're at, leaving the door open for this other stuff. But once we start getting these policies through about, you know, everybody has to have a recovery plan that's towards them stopping to use because people, when they come into a drug service, say they want to stop using drugs. Well, of course they say they want to stop using drugs. That's the correct answer. Mm. You know, if, if you've just worked up the nerve to come into a drug service to pick up needles and somebody says, what do you want to do? Stop? What do you want to do? Do you want to carry on or do you want to stop using the correct answer is to stop using yeah and you're going to do anything you can to give the correct answer to get yourself out that door as fast as you can so once we set these policies in place to say everybody has to have these recovery plans everybody has to have these these things in place we're then pressuring people we're not meeting people where they're at we're pressuring people to be where we want them to be at so it's not what's good for them; it's what's good for us as a service. Yeah. Um, because you know the, the the basic simple thing is we should be trying to keep people as healthy as possible for as long as possible.
0: Mm. So did you did you feel then at the point when um when the whole when the recovery uh, agenda, so to speak, came in, did you feel like uh, a harm reductionists? activists or whatever way you want to describe it, were being alienated out?
2: Uh, We were, in in a lot of cases, uh, people were pushed out. I've got uh, friends who lost jobs um, because they were doing basic harm reduction work and they were doing it quite out there. Um, We used to run these things called Harm Reduction cafes, which were just informal get-togethers of harm reductionists. And I had... One friend who was told that, you know, they'd get a written warning if they attended one of these harm reduction cafes. You know, it's it's that level of... It, it was seen as being this, this dirty word for a little while. And it's kind of coming back, but it's going to take another 10 years to get mm. even back to the stage. Well, the amount of, of harm reduction... I mean, I class myself as sort of third wave. So the amount of old guard of harm reduction that either no longer work in harm reduction or who have just aged out of working in harm reduction. It's huge. Drug services now do all of their training in-house and I can tell you from experience, some of that in-house training isn't necessarily very good. I, do, I deliver safe injecting training and I'll get people coming on my course saying, oh, I've, I've, been, I've already had a safe injecting training three times. I, I just want to see if there's anything new to learn, and I cover just what I consider the basics, and it's all stuff that they've never learned before. So, what what are these in-house trainings delivering? That- do Do you feel
0: that's because of of this, this such high turnover? I know from when doing the uh, you know the, doing the conference uh, as well, I, I've seen. You know, I would say thirty percent year-on-year reduction in in the, you know some of the services that again people, individuals that I, I that I knew were there, kind of just basically kind of being pushed out. I mean, one the, there's not great wages in this whole industry. There isn't, um, and 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 ultimately for some people, and and you understand it is like money. Obviously, is is one of the key drivers as well. And when do you lose those? Um, Really big, experienced workers, especially in a, in a in a service, you're losing tremendous knowledge, and I think that I feel that is one of the big things that gets really lost in in in, in, a, in, a, in conversation.
2: We see it now. It's like, like there's um there's a worker that I bumped into at a festival near here um a couple of years ago, and. They they were working in harm reduction. They considered themselves as working in harm reduction. Uh, they were working with pharmacies to do stuff around naloxone, um, but they weren't engaged with any of the people that we would have been engaged with back in the day. You know, they, they didn't know about other groups around the world that were doing harm reduction. They weren't... Um, told about websites and stuff that they could get their information from so there was does that whole it then ends up becoming a mentorship thing of like trying to like say to people look here's a whole load of information and just keep throwing information at people but there's hardly anybody left in organizations to do that so what we now get is we now get people and i see it when we run our um conference at hit people who are they think that they're doing something new and innovative. Like those of us who are older are going, but you see that guy over there. He did that like 20 years ago, yeah, and he's got all the research still for having done that 20 years ago. I, I started a crankpipe uh, equipment program in the UK. 15, 16 years ago, and now we're still not at a stage where that's a standard thing in the UK. In about 10 years' time, we'll probably get somebody to go, so oh, it's maybe a good idea to give people safer pipes. But these bits of work have already been done by people, but mm-hmm. the people that have been done by are now out of the service. So now people are starting to have to, this is what I'm saying, it's going to take 10 years to get back to anywhere. We effectively have to sort of learn how to build a wheel again. Mm-hmm. Um. And yet we've got organisations like you've got Harm Reduction Coalition in the United States, Um, you've got Drug Policy Alliance in the United States, you've got organisations in Canada, you've got organisations in Australia who are still producing information, producing really good info on how to needle exchange, uh, how to... overdose prevention sites or safe injecting rooms, depending on which way you want to look at it, you know, drug consumption rooms. You know, there's, there's over hundred drug consumption rooms around the world. Um, and yet we don't have a legal one in the UK anywhere. We've got the one that Peter runs out of a van up in Scotland, but he gets arrested for it. Because we've got a government that, even though there's a wealth of evidence of how good these are to save lives, uh, we've got a government that doesn't want to do to be seen to be doing that, which is really weird because we've got we've got a conservative government. And this would save money, and they're normally all about that.
0: But... What what are the, you know from the, uh, um, I know you've uh, you know you've written quite extensively, and, and, and definitely y- y- your friends. Um, I think that's the easiest way of trying to put it <laughs> your friends. You know who taking who taking the uh, taking the drug consumption. What are the the basic arguments that are for and against it
2: against it the argument is that you're seen to be giving people a safe space to use drugs and that's frowned upon for some reason we we give we have drug consumption rooms on most um you can probably not walk five streets anywhere in a major city before you come to a drug consumption room they're called pubs you know, pubs are safe consumption spaces. You you have stuff that's at a set quality. You're given it at a set dose. Um, if it's deemed that you've had too much of that dose, then you're refused any more. Um, and there's laws in place to make sure that everything is safe as possible within that space. But once we start getting into the illegal drugs... Then it's then it's far more frowned upon. It's it's basically a fear of the Daily Mail, um, because you have these spaces that the only people that they would be benefiting are the most vulnerable people on the edge of society. So homeless people, people with uh, enduring mental health problems, people with enduring uh, drug problems, or young people who it's unsafe for them to do what they're doing in their home space because their parents would um, kick off. So instead we force them to use the street. And you've seen some of the photographs I've taken of just around Birmingham, some of the places that people inject. And it's, you know, you you wouldn't wish that on anybody. The pro stuff is that in the UK, we're at our highest level of drug related deaths ever. And I could say that, I can say that now, and I could have said that to you last year, and I could have said it to you the year before, and we can go back to the last five or six years, and I could say it to you every year Mm. because these drug related deaths are growing. We're told by government that drug use is down, and the drug related deaths this year are at their highest ever level, and they were at their highest ever level last year as well, and they were at the highest. level at the year before and the year before that and the year before that. We're told by government that drug use is going down and yet drug-related deaths are going up. So something's going wrong somewhere. Yeah, And we've also, in the past few years, have had naloxone as a thing, which is an opiate antagonist that reverses overdose. So we're giving out naloxone that reverses overdose. We've got less people using drugs, but we've got more drug-related deaths. So there's something, the, the percentage of people dying is going up. Now, if you compare that street use and that home use to use in a drug consumption room, there's drug consumption rooms all around the world, and there hasn't been a single death from overdose in a drug consumption room ever. Part of that is because there's naloxone on hand, there's medical staff on hand sometimes. Um, you have oxygen on hand a lot of the time. But at it's very basic level, all we're talking about in a drug consumption room is a safe space and somebody there just to make sure that you're okay. Now, that could be what most people, I believe, think. I think if you went out into Birmingham tomorrow and asked people what a needle exchange does, a lot of them would think it was somewhere people took drugs already people think that i think and it is very basic level that's all we need is just a room with a clean area Mm. and somebody on hand to administer naloxone if somebody overdoses that's all we're asking for when we're asking for a drug consumption room we don't necessarily need they're talking in glasgow about you know one with over a million pounds spent on it with nurses and doctors on hand and all sorts of stuff. We don't even need that. We just need a drugs worker with naloxone and maybe a bit of oxygen that they know how to use and a clean surface that gets cleaned in between every person. And that's not even that hard now. We've got our heads around the idea of having clean areas between every person now. You know, <laughs> the joys of the pandemic means that we, we're now used to cleaning down areas a lot more. So, you know, we've already done that hurdle. Let's, let's sort the other hurdle. it's very annoying from a harm reduction point of view that this isn't something that is being just widely done so is this then
0: you know from the way that you're 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 explaining it um, in a in a in a great manner is this more of a, a a political decision rather than a health decision
2: it's so 100% political. If it was a health decision, they'd be open to mob. Hmm. If it was a health decision, we'd have had them for years. It's purely a political decision because they see it as being uh, political suicide to say that they're going to do something that allows people to use drugs. Hmm. They didn't even like the idea of needle exchange back in the day. You know, the, the, the government were You know, we we did really well with needle exchange in the fact that we got got an easy pass in the early days of it, but it wasn't that easy to get through in reality, it's just it seems easy compared to things like the United States where, you know, there was the ban on federal funding of needle exchanges, um, where people had to fight for stuff. But the advantage of them having to fight for things means that you've got some really creative projects in the United States. You've got projects that are funded by T-shirt sales, for Christ's sake. You know, it's it's a different world. And
0: in and you, and you, and, and your line of work as well, you get an opportunity to go around the world. Have you managed to actually visit a place where you've been abroad to, uh, you know, one of the drunk consumption rooms? And what was your experiences yeah. like?
2: Yeah, I I went and spent a couple of weeks, well, I spent three weeks in Australia. Um, In the first week I visited, there was a brand new drug consumption room that had been set up in uh, Richmond in Melbourne. Um, So I was there in its early days of, I think it'd been open a couple of weeks. And that was really interesting to be there early on because you saw that it didn't have the community buy-in as much yet. Um, not just from the wider community, but from the drug-using community in the area. So um, I have this photograph of the medical director's hands with some rubber gloves in, and it's him on his way back from reversing an overdose in a car park within sight of the injecting room because somebody was injecting in that car park. There's an injecting room there. So it's not this easy thing of, you know, if you set up an injecting room, everybody will come and in injecting it. You've got to build that community trust up. But then I went over to Sydney and Sydney is uh, the second, probably the second most researched one. Uh, Insight in Canada is the most researched one because the, the national governments of Canada kept trying to shut it down. But Sydney's this this amazing project. Marianne, that is the uh, medical director there, um, had invited me down to Australia to sort of photograph it and spend some time there. And the thing that was different for me was you have a kind of image in your head of what something's going to be. And we have this image, especially in drug services, we have this image in our head that, Everything has to be like dour, sort of like, you know, highly medicalized and stuff. And this is a place with nurses. This is a place with medical staff. It's, like I say, everything's cleaned down. But it was how relaxed it was. So if you think somebody's street injecting, they've, they know that they've got a short amount of time and it could be a cop or a member of the public walking past at any point that's going to have a go at them. When you're in a place like this, you had people sitting and chatting while they were preparing their shot, having their shot. If they were having a problem finding a vein, they'd call over a nurse or something, and a nurse would suggest other possible routes in. Then they'd when they'd had their shot, they'd go into this uh, chill out area afterwards where they'd sit and they'd have a cup of tea and talk about, you know, what Changes they wanted to make, you know, they could get referrals onto other services. Um, but it was a happy, relaxed environment where there was no stress or worry about it. And I was—I saw a few overdoses when I was there. So it's not that there are no overdoses in these places. There are overdoses. The difference is that when there's an overdose, everybody responds and everybody saves somebody's life. So I saw a few overdoses then. The thing that got me was it was all perfect. It was all right. We'll do this. Blah blah blah. Right, they're breathing again. Right, get them in this chair. We'll monitor them. You monitor him. We've got somebody over here that needs a bit of help as well. Everything goes back to normal. you, you it's just so relaxed.
0: You you touched on two two points really. One was around the sort of the the pandemic, and the other one about the community. Um on the rare occasion when sometimes I do jump on Facebook, um, I do see this, um, you know, your, your active posts around brew thoughts. So just tell me a little bit about that. And, um, and I, and uh, I think once you kind of explained it, I think the, uh, I think your commitment to the community, especially around this bit sort of comes through.
2: There's no way of saying all this though, because I tried to. I've tried to explain this. Somebody was talking about it the other night. Um, I was doing a. I was running some chatbox games for uh, the, the people in the Australian yeah. um, injecting room.
0: I think you're in the wrong country. I think, from what I've heard now, I think you belong everywhere else apart from here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I, the the proof of thing is an accidental photo project. I'm a photographer. It's. You know, it's kind of what I've moved into. It's the part of harm reduction that I really like is photographing and doing portraiture. But I've not left my house for the past year because we're on lockdown. And because I'm public health-minded, I've been following the rules, like, to the letter.
1: Mm.
2: It's not trying to, like, get around things by saying, well, technically, I can go and do this. No, I've been at home or shopping in the supermarket, and that's all I've done for the year so all it started off was I took a photograph of myself drinking a cup of coffee on a morning, like we all do. We all do little selfies and stuff, mm-hmm. and just said, you know, something along the lines of, I hope everybody's okay today. And this was, it was April 27th, I know, because I looked it up the other day, because somebody told me i would be doing a year. Um, and it was like, I hope everybody's doing okay today. Look, we're going to get through this. And then I did one the next day. And a load of people were commenting and posting photographs of themselves drinking coffee. And it got to, it's got to a stage, especially sort of halfway through the year, where loads of people were commenting, loads of people were liking, loving, whatever. And I was like, this is getting out of hand now because I, I'm, I, I was sitting there on a the morning. Taking a photograph of myself drinking coffee, and they're, all the photographs are very different. They're weird angles and stuff. And um, trying desperately to think of something positive, even when I'm like, you know, like yesterday, I was feeling pretty shit. I was feeling depressed and um down. I've, I've had a two-day migraine, and I, I wasn't feeling positive at all. But my sort of self enclosed rule is all oh, these have to be positive things because there's people out there that are really suffering i've got friends who've got you know relatives on incubator on um, ventilators i've got friends who you know relatives have just died i've got friends who are suffering with depression coming up to anniversaries of other people's deaths that died of covid or died of accidents at the start of covid there's one anniversary coming up um so i know there's all these people out there who are hurting and I just wanted to do something each day that would be a sort of like a here here's, here's somebody's thinking about you so every every post is something positive and then I love you all and if I can't think of anything positive I'll stick in a quote from the Stoics or yesterday was a quote from a science fiction book about We're going to get through this, you know, hug your family kind of thing. And every time I talk about stopping it because it's getting a bit much to do, I I get a load of people saying, really, don't stop this because it's kind of one of the only things keeping me going. And then I also get a whole load of direct messages from people going, I never comment on these things, but really, they're the first thing I look for. So now I'm in this kind of like service mode of you know that that whole we've spoken before about like service stuff you know do things for people wherever possible and if it helps people get through you just keep doing that thing and i'm kind of now stuck in this service mode of i'm gonna have to be doing this until at least all this shit is over um you know, I've got to at least hit the year. So I've got another six weeks or so before then, but I think I'm going to be doing this until all this is done. And I personally don't think all of this is done for another
0: year yet, at least. Yeah. I mean, but what, it's, it's, you do what you can. Yeah. 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 I mean, you check, you check it, you check in on people as best you can. I think that's one of the, one of the key things. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, la- I'll ask you that a little bit later on to get into it. I mean, you know, the sense of community that you were talking about. I remember reading a piece that you did in December 2018 around that you were really worried about the community. Um, and um, if, I, if I'm if i being truthful, it I, I, it kind of summarised some of the bits where I was because um, I was getting, you know, a lot of information. A lot of people were asking for help and support and I was just getting, I was worn out. I, was, I genuinely was sort of burnt out in this day. But I think your, your 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 um your blog that you wrote there sort of um brought a get, brought together a few of the different feelings a, a few of the things that were happening in the field that I don't think anybody actually managed to put um onto paper. Can you just tell us where you were when you were writing that and what the blog was essentially about?
2: We've we've had some high-profile losses in harm reduction. Um, thinking back to, we, we lost a friend of mine called Dan Big. Uh, Dan Big was, like his name, um, he, was, he was this amazing guy. He was one of the founders of the Chicago Recovery Alliance. Dan would turn up to conferences with army kit bag-sized bags full of naloxone give a talk about naloxone and then say, if you don't have naloxone in your projects, take whatever you want at the back of the room and take it back with you. If you found out that your project didn't have naloxone, uh, you would probably end up with a load of naloxone delivered to you with no asking for money or anything for the next week. A A friend of mine was told that, you know, she told him that they didn't have it and that, she couldn't get it off him because that would break certain rules um, for her or her specific organization. And the next Monday to her own house, there was just a case of that had been delivered. No, no, no anything. It was just this anonymous, here's a case of it. And he would do this around the world. Um, so he was a great, great guy. And he was, he was more important than that for lots of reasons. And like I say, he was a friend. And he died, and we were getting other people dying as well. He actually died of an overdose, ironically. And we had other people dying, and we we had, for instance, some big-name Canadian harm reduction guy die. Uh, he died shortly before that. We had, um, yeah, and lo- lots of people going, and it was clear. It's not burnout, it's about we we're all stretched really thin. The people that do the high-level harm reduction stuff and the frontline harm reduction stuff are all stretched really, really thin. And we're firefighting, we're you know, we tend to be the activist types anyway. So we're the ones in the room in the place where If things kick off, we'll be the ones trying to like support other people. And we're really bad at supporting ourselves personally. And I was seeing it in everybody I knew. Everybody I knew was on their, basically on their last legs. And it terrified me because all it was going to take was another person at the kind of level that Dan was at to go. And I think the whole thing comes crashing down. We, we, I know friends who have had in Canada, especially who've had time off with sort of PTSD from all of the grief that they're having to deal with. Um, I've got even UK friends who, you know, I'm, I'm really scared. And it's part of what the coffee thing is about as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm spending an awful lot of time sending people messages saying how worried, asking if they're okay. Because I'm really worried that with the pandemic causing the extra stress and anxiety, with the deaths through overdose, the deaths through other things. We've just lost you, um, one of the big activists from Australia, big drug user activists from Australia. Um, she died... This last couple of weeks, and we can't really take it as a community. We're we're running out of, and what I worry is that we're going to get to a stage where everybody just leaves, or even worse, more people start dying as they're trying to cope with this through using s- substances or through uh, uh, suicide. And. <laughs>
0: you know the de- I think the feeling that I got through it when I was um um reading it, it was especially in, in um in the harm reduction world it is such a fragile ecosystem and if a few things are going and and in it, if if we don't get, if we don't look after it, it's a bit like the climate, isn't it? If we don't look after it, look after the people, check in that you know, there's going to be irre- irreversible damage that's going to be happening. And I think that goes back to what you were mentioning around uh, the, the the 10 years before. So what do you think in terms of like trying to spin it around, what do you think we can actively do in order to try and keep some of these um I don't really want to say tradition because I don't think it's a, it's a traditional format. I think the, the this way of life moving forward.
2: Some sort of support system. And I'm not just talking about um, sort of like, you know, making sure that all workers get supervision kind of thing. Um, we need, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of setting up mentoring kind of work. Um, and I, I mentor, there's, there's somebody who works in harm reduction stuff that I mentor um, formally, and then there's a few other people I mentor informally. But we need some kind of mentorship system. In America, it's really common to hear people talk about their mentor being somebody that, like, helps them into this. But we, we, you, know, you know from work that you do that occasionally you see somebody that's got that spark Mm. and that they're not like all of their colleagues. They've got a a passion for what they're doing. They're not doing this just for the mortgage payment. They're doing this because they're passionate. What we need to do is we need to foster those people and we need to make sure that they're linked up. I'm a great believer that if two people should meet, they should meet. So if there's anybody that I know that you should speak to, I will do my best to make sure that I introduce you to that person. Mm. So on a very basic level, that's what I'm talking about, finding, helping people find their own mental But we need some kind of support systems in place And I don't think these need to be formalised within any particular organisation. I think these need to be separate from all all of the organisations and they need to be more about a personal development rather than a professional development because we need to be giving people the resilience to understand. I think when we've got these young workers coming in and they come in with these big goals of they're going to, you know, help people stop using drugs tomorrow kind of thing. And then they realise, that, like, a year down the line that the person that they're helping has maybe reduced their use a little bit. Or they've stopped using drugs and then gone back to using drugs. And then that's really damaging for that person. Not just the person... The person with the drug use issues is one thing, and, you know, but it's also... The workers' point of view of understanding that they need to come in with this with the with the the level of expectation that's pragmatic and realistic and supported, and they understand what their role is in society on this. And I'm, I'm really. I think the the the. Wherever possible, we need more community. It's we need to start seeing this as a community. We don't see it as a community in the UK very well.
0: Mm.
2: We're all in our own little silos. I,
0: I think some of the, I think one of the things that I kind of take away when whenever I look at uh, look at your work and I and I could see, it, um, is that you've got your kind of your family involved. <laughs> And I feel that's the. Uh, I think that's probably the best way of doing it. Is like when you think about legacy, um, and you think about. Sorry, I just lost you again. What was that?
2: All I got there was family involved. <laughs>
0: yeah, I said so. When, you know, when I when I look at yourself and and, and around legacy, your family's very very involved, uh, and your daughter. Do you? I can see obviously the elements of 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 yourself in there. Is that a way in terms of like securing the future, knowing that knowledge is being paid based? On, I know that you haven't forced her into this whole field and and her 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 interest. <laughs> you know the interest. I think sometimes when when you you've got really passionate parents in a particular field, I think sometimes it just naturally rubs off. Were you ever cautious of not? Um, getting her involved or did you feel that it's a way of actually protecting the legacy I know that's a bit of a, a naughty question in there
2: it's not really I think it's more making sure that she's sort of prepared for life in a way mm. so my my kids relationship with harm reduction is 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 different than most people's kids relationships with drugs so she was saying last night videos an afro man video comes up and um she was saying that it's one of her friend's best uh, favorite pieces because he's started smoking cannabis um that he was like oh there's this thing here let me, sh- <coughs> <Pardon> me. <coughs> here let me show you this video and he showed her the video and she's like do you not know what house I was brought up in? Yeah. You know this. This is this is like my childhood. This isn't now. I mean, my kid's eighteen. Um, but the the way that we speak about drugs in the house, the we we have a kind of a, an unspoken rule of radical love and radical honesty. So I've never lied to my kid about any drug experience. You know, it it was years before she actually asked me whether or not I'd ever had any drugs. Mm. And I was like, right, well, there's this and this and this, but that's it. And But that radical love and radical honesty extends to our extended family, our sort of friends and... Colleagues of mine that come around, and obviously, because I now work in activism, I still know lots of people who use drugs. It's just the people I know who use drugs now are holding down, like, you know, nine, nine to
0: five jobs and three, four hundred thousand dollars
2: nine-to-five jobs and they're, 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 doing, they're doing activism around the world, this kind of thing. So she's quite used to the idea that somebody that comes into the house might be somebody who also in their spare time uses heroin or uses ketamine or, you know, smokes cannabis or vapes or, or whatever. She's, she's, quite use, she's quite used to that idea. And they always treat her on a level. I'm very lucky that my friends never really speak down to my kid and mm. never like try and hide anything. They always speak on a level. So she's grown up with this idea of this honesty and she's not interested particularly in using drugs. She She's not interested in getting drunk. She's an 18 year old and she's never been drunk and she doesn't want to be drunk. She'll drink a little bit of alcohol, that's it. Um, but she's really fascinated around the drug policy stuff and around the information on drugs. So we gave a talk about being brought up in a harm reduction family. We gave a talk um, in London to Leap UK, and this and she they they loved her because she had such a confidence about her. Um, you know, she did her first bit of harm reduction at age eleven, where she was. Administering naloxone to her teddy bear because her teddy bear had had an overdose. It's it's on YouTube. Google uh, harm reduction is uh, naloxone administration is Um, child's play. She wrote a for her EPQ for school on harm reduction and how we should have more of it. And she's filming a documentary. She's been filming a documentary for a couple of years with. a friend of mine who runs a media company down in London, um, hide and seek media. And she's been doing one about drug policy and going and like doorstepping conservative politicians and, and asking police whether or not they think that there should be a legalization. Um, she's, she's a little sod. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's more about making sure that she's, she's ready for, for life. I mean, we, we with young people, it's we try and hide things from them and then they become exciting and taboo. Hmm. And to her, drugs aren't exciting and taboo, it's just there's the things that some people do. Is that because she's so
0: well-informed in terms of everything yeah. around it and then they make the, 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 the informed choice?
2: Yeah, and she, you know, kids nowadays, they, they have access to every piece of information ever via the internet. I mean, she's. We've got a wealth of books in the house. You know, there's there's loads of Alexander Shulgin books, for <laughs> MDMA kind of stuff. There's Nick Saunders books. There's Terence McKenna stuff in there. You know, it's it's not like there's a shortage of knowledge in the house. And obviously, she asks me lots of questions as well. But she she goes and she finds out the information for herself. So she's, you know, she's quite interested in stuff around cannabis. She's quite interested in stuff around psychedelics. Um, And she has ended up giving harm reduction advice to some of her peers who are using drugs because drugs are interesting, exciting and taboo to them. But she gives them harm reduction advice. It's like full circle, like I used to be with my friends who were doing lots of LSD. (coughs) Yeah, I definitely got the
0: the sense of kind of the the the, the poetic uh, full circle in terms of what's going on, and I and I and I do think, you know, some of the apprehensions that you were saying you you're you're going to be having the, the likes of your daughter, all around the world, becoming those people who are up, you know, going against the grain, uh, challenging. Uh, stereotypes being really aggressive in in opening up new fields of work, and you know, and most important, not just fields of work, but ways of thinking.
2: See, I, I work I work for the O'Hares. I, I work for an organisation called Hit a couple of days a week, and that was set up by Pat O'Hare. Uh, he found he was one of the founders of Harm Reduction International. Um, early days harm reductionist you know he was on the front cover of newspapers as this deluded idiot because he wanted to like give young people information about mdma so they could take it more safely um now my boss is his daughter so you know you again you get that generational thing going and i know i know people all around the world now who are parents who are bringing their kids up in these like really loving households because harm reduction, especially in America, harm reduction is equated with sort of love and caring. We see it a little bit more formalised here because we're English. English people don't bring love into work. Yeah. Um, I think
0: that's the same everywhere, from money, <laughs> But in,
2: in America and Canada, it's all about love. Yeah. yeah. It's you know it's all about showing love and showing caring for people, and so these fam- these households are like some of the coolest people you've ever met, bringing up kids in these loving environments and teaching them the stuff that they need to know to navigate life.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so the not only yourself, um. Uh, well, I'm going to say it this way. Okay, so, so next month you're fifty, and and uh, the drug mis- yeah the, the the drug misuse act is also fifty. I will say that's not
2: my fault. <laughs> what? That you're fifty? <laughs> <No, laughs> but but I'm that it's a coincidence. I had nothing. Baby Nigel had nothing to do with the drug misuse act. Um. <laughs> Yeah, it's
0: definitely entwined. That's what I was going to say. So, in t- in terms of what uh, you know, we're at the pivotal point now. Uh, fifty. We we know that the the drugs agenda in 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 itself is kind of slipping on on a, on the political agenda. Um, you're getting more activism now around, um, you know, like work like Voltface are doing uh, around legalization. What do you think the next sort of fifty years will look like?
2: Um, I'm hoping that we kind of, although it's very rare to say that I'm hoping that we follow suit with America, especially when you look at America over the past few years. But I am hoping that we start following suit with America around sort of cannabis legalisation, very basic. Um, And not just decriminalisation, but legalisation. We need the ability for people to get what is effectively quite a safe substance and in a way where its supply isn't in the hands of criminals. No substance is ever safer by putting its supply in the hands of criminals. Um, So if we can bring that into a legislative framework where, you know, we have controlled dose, we have controlled purity, we have controls on everything by making it a food stuff or a drug stuff and saying, you know, it has to pass these certain standards. That will make that safer. And in an ideal world, I'd love to see that extended beyond cannabis to other substances. Uh, There's a big move in Canada at the moment around safe supply. And it's starting to move down into America as well, and the idea that the government should be ensuring that it's—they know that people are going to take drugs—and in Canada, the thing that's mainly killing people is a poisoned drug supply. So you know, fentanyl moving into the drug supply, which is a direct response to the drug being heroin being illegal. Mm you know, if you make something illegal, it becomes more valuable. So then criminals will want to get that into a country. If you then think, well, during prohibition in the United States, alcohol was illegal. The people who were illegally drinking alcohol during prohibition were not drinking beer. They were drinking spirits because why would you ship beer into somewhere when you can ship spirits into somewhere? Why do you ship such a large volume of a low-alcohol thing when you can ship a small volume of a high-alcohol thing? And that's why fentanyl becomes a thing, uh, or the fentanyls, I should say. So, but that poison drug supply then means that more people are dying. And in Canada, it's especially bad. In Canada and parts of America, it's now like fentanyls and pretty much everything.
0: Yeah, I went, I went, to, Van- I went to Vancouver um, a couple of years ago, and um, I actually we were getting sort of driven around the city i had to get out because i actually saw one of the like a drug service there and uh you talked about the the community feeling but anytime you anyone mentioned fentanyl it was you know it was just i learned a lot from it yeah. from that point i was seeing the homeless the homeless situation that in in the city is just horrific um and every Especially time i was yeah, yeah, I, I, I was in, yeah, I was in that, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah, and uh, as I was speaking to a few, you know, they were just talking about how fentanyl in the last few years, has been flooding. They were getting more and more. The, the overdoses were, 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 were kicking in. Um, so, uh, I saw, um, it was really strange. Really, it was, you know, you got a sense of kind of communities and, uh, um, of service users within, um, in the UK. And I saw it over there, and it was just like it it was the analogy was it was the same house of worship, but two different religions what was going on, but it was ultimately you know the same kind of products but just a different experience
2: yeah the I went to Montreal for two conferences back to back one was a harm reduction conference one was a sociology conference, and I was doing photography at both of them um but I, I got talking to some guys out there, um, and I had naloxone on me at the time. And I, I ended up doing like street supply of naloxone to a few guys out there that I met. And they they were talking about the number of overdoses that they were seeing. These, these were people who were street homeless. Um, the number of overdoses that they were seeing among their friends. Was immense, and I've got I've got Canadian friends who are from um, drug use organisations, uh, drug using organisations. I should say. So, so user activism is much bigger in the Americas than it is in the UK. And you know, I've got friends who have had close calls with overdoses. Um, I've got other friends who've overdosed and died, and it's. It's an entirely different monster out there than it is here. And that's why they've got the cause for the safe supply stuff, because the next logical step is a safe level of supply. Mm. And if that means it going down the route of sort of registration and you register and you pick up a safe, a safer substance. Um, but we need to do something about the whole dose problem of drug use. So the dose problem being, um, I can buy a substance. I can. I live in a small, quiet village in Derby. I can. I. I know I can probably get drugs here within about half an hour. Um, if I was in the town centre, I could get them within five or ten minutes. But I can't tell you what the doses on that drug. Uh, the person selling it to me doesn't know what the dose is on that drug. You know, nobody up the line knows what the dose is on that drug. We can, we can maybe get the drug tested and find out what's in it if you're somewhere where there's drug testing. So if you're somewhere where the loop have got a project, um, so some festivals and stuff, you can find out what's in your drug, but you don't necessarily know the dose of it. And you won't know the dose, tablet to tablet or bag to bag, because there's hot spotting. So, it's, which is really bad with fentanyl, because fentanyl's more powerful down to the individual grains. So, if you get a bag of powder, it might be that when those bags were made, more grains got into one bag than the other. So, yeah. one bag is three times the power, the potency of another bag. And that's why we need. That's the reason that we need a level of legalization because until we have a level of legalization we don't solve the dose problem and it's the dose problem that causes overdose mm. in the in the most part you've got other things that cause it you've got mental health problems you've got people who are passively suicidal who are you know using too much there's the fact that you know by its nature drug use is an attempt to overdose um meaning you're taking more than therapeutic dose, but you're trying not to die. So you're overdosing, but trying to stop just short of that point of, you know, where it starts becoming dangerous. Uh, That's drug use in general. And that's the same for people who are getting drunk. You know, the therapeutic dose of alcohol is a couple of units of alcohol, but you see people on a Friday night necking far more than that because they want to get as out of their heads as possible um but yeah so we need that safe supply and i think the very basic cannabis would be a good start but i do worry that because we have such with organizations like Vaultface that you mentioned have such a focus on cannabis to the exclusion of all else that we'll get to the stage where we have cannabis and then it'll just stop because no work's been done on the other stuff so we'll get a safe supply of cannabis and that's it. It won't be this wedge idea that the right wing think it is where everything else will become legal. It will actually be the opposite. It will be like a, a blockade that stops us getting anything else legalized.
0: I think we had a, a kind of a mini version, like a really microcosm of, of events around the legalization around when NPS first, well, back then legal highs first came onto the market. Yeah. What? Do you think that market's dead now, with that whole phenomenon, or is it still still around?
2: It's it's still around. It might have settled down a little bit. It might have, you know, it's it's had its Bitcoin explosion, sort yeah. of thing, of like it being a really easy, quick way of a load of people to make money. But it's it's always going to be around. Now that that's out of the box. Now it's
0: yeah. What I'm, what I meant by that was. Um, from the phenom- the phenomenon is where i think a lot of attention went to it and i think a lot of attention got distracted from the traditional the tr- traditional sort of uh, drugs that we were used to do, do you think <coughs> do you think that's all kind of played itself out now or is it it's it's there um but we need to kind of um, recalibrate our focus on 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 a, a few drugs
2: i think we we need to we We always need to think about the highest levels of risk. The reason that uh, legal highs or NPS or whatever we're going to call them um, were such a focus was they were coming thick and fast and people were getting a lot of issues with them really fast. So we had, um, there was in the early days, there was issues around um, injecting sites not healing very fast. Uh, it causing some issues around sort of T-cell kind of stuff. So there was this worry that things were going to get worse, much worse than they did. And they got quite bad as it was. I mean, the whole people in the street heavily intoxicated on NPS was quite quite an issue. But at a very basic level, the reason that I consider myself a harm reduction person is that on the basic level, what we're trying to do is keep people alive. And so we've got to really, we've got to look at what it is that's killing people. Mm. And we can say from a drug point of view, it's heroin, you know, maybe benzos in there as well, and mixing, alcohol, mixing drugs is a bad thing. So we, we should work on that first. But even bigger than that, there's, Carhartt does a lot of stuff about um, the sort of, the sh- talks a lot about the structures that are in place. So especially, we don't have much of a thing in this country about the sort of, the racial element of the drug war. In America, obviously, it's a far more racialized mm-hmm. thing. Here, we've it's racialized in terms of stop and search, especially in some of the bigger cities where, you know, you've you've got this stop and search of uh, young black males who are, and searched far far more than you know a white guy who's just as likely to be if not more likely to be using drugs um but we've we've got to think about what it is that's making people have a problem with their drug use in the first place you go back to things like the uh, rat park thing where it's like you know in a in a place where rats are in a tiny cage they're more likely to go for the heroin than they are to go for the water without heroin in Uh, but if you give them a big beautiful park to play in you know you make everything really interesting for them they're less likely to do it you know if, if you've got people where the only thing that they can look forward to at the end of the day is getting high then that's an issue And it could be that that getting high is getting drunk. It could be that that getting high is having sex with strangers. It could be that that getting high is getting off their head on whatever drug going. Uh, But we need to sort of, like, look at these underpinnings within society that make people feel that that is a problem. Most people who drink alcohol don't end up with a problem with alcohol because most people who drink alcohol... uh, living nice middle-class lives, middle-class villages and towns, and, you know, they're, they're fine, they're, they're able to have nice computers, nice things like this, and they, they get on with their life. It's only when we – there's a reason that the bulk of people that come into drug services with a problem, which is the a tiny percentage of people who use drugs that come into drug services, there's a reason that an awful lot of them have histories of abuse – have issues around poverty unemployment social social inequality issues you know you don't find a lot of university professors in high-paid jobs coming into drug services with a problem with their drug use Yet, i know lots of high-paid professors in universities with really good jobs who use drugs so we we need to look at these these other inequalities as well as part of harm reduction, and that 's why we do, what we don 't do at all in the u k we We avoid that like the plague in the u k but in america they 're starting to look at it uh, harm reduction coalition did a uh, north Star statement, so their main focus for the next few years is going to be around the ra- the racialization of the drug war
0: yeah i'm i'm in race and uh... okay. Is one of the big things in terms of where uh, I, I kind of got involved and stuff from that, and I think it's probably a conversation for another time yet because I'm still it's, big it's conversation. Yeah, and big I'm not the one, I'm
2: not the one to be having that with.
0: No, I, I, I no, I I kind of disagree with that because I think at the same time is like it's people like yourselves who've got extensive knowledge around bringing world knowledge in there. And I think we shouldn't be scared to have conversations with people around a- any subject. I think just because, yeah. uh, you know, f- from me, coming from an ethnic background, I'm going to be learning, you know, I've, yeah. I kind of maximise my sphere of influence in some ways in terms of where you, you've talked to the people who you can and and, it, and it's not going to be there. But I'd rather have people who know the experiences and make the recommendations. than if they could be that's, that's just
2: it. I'm I I'm very rarely gonna have an experience of random stop and search. Oh yeah, I'm not. I was talking about. I'm a, I'm a 50 yeah. year old yeah. white guy. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, the, the I'm not going to be stopped and searched. I can walk past police in the town centre, and even though at the back of my head I'm like, they can stop me. Yeah and i have been stopped stopped for wearing drug related t-shirts and stuff before and asked questions but nobody's ever wanted to go through my pockets as a result but i'm guessing if you were wearing a nice people take drugs t-shirt like i do Mm. and you walked past those same coppers your chance of being stopped and my chance of being stopped are very different
0: Yeah, Uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was talking more from around about engagement in terms of actually making, you know, sitting in those decisions um, in the hierarchy of the, uh, you know, drug and alcohol commissioners and the fields of having that representation. I think that would be, you know, my my fight is there in in terms of like how it is on the street, you know, from the 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 enforcement side. It's that is just an absolute minefield in terms of what that looks like. You, we can't, you know, I can't experience. What well, the African Black Caribbean community uh, uh, go through in terms of, you know, from, from stop and search, um, you know, there's stereotypes everywhere in terms of, um, you know, Punjabis and Sikhs, all they do is just drink. You know, there's, there's, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of things that comes down. I think, I think that needs to come. That's just a, such a big conversation at this point that they're not, it's it's hard to break down into, to tackle into a short conversation what, what, what we're having here.
2: And and it's not a conversation that many people want to have. I mean, release do some work around it. They do work releases drug use in the law. Uh, they do they do work around the racialization of drug of the drug war in the UK mm. um and internationally. There's there's some organizations that do that work in the UK, but most of the time the conversation around policing and race in the UK is uh, predicated around violence and around this idea of knife crime, things like that, which is does that that in itself is a whole big thing. If you if you feel that you can't trust the police, then you end up taking steps yourself to protect yourself, which may include things like carrying a knife. Which then means that you're more likely to be arrested for carrying a knife. Which then makes this idea of like you know people of colour are then seen as people who carry knives it's like the, well, the reason that you're carrying a knife is because you don't feel that you can go to the police because when you try to go to the police then you get treated as a criminal and so you know we, we we have those issues but i don't think it's particularly a conversation that we're very good at here bringing that into the drugs realm mm. um and that could be because drug services in the uk are so white you know, most most people who come to drug services in the UK outside of certain cities are white. Mm. And then most people who go through those drug services and end up becoming drugs workers further down the line are white. So we end up with this very white drug service, which we have a problem with in the UK. We have a mostly white service, and we see that in... Uh, Conference attendance and things like that, you know, you've, you've run conferences, <laughs> yeah. and most of the people who weren't white were specifically invited to. Yeah, I had to drag them there, um, and you're running one in Birmingham, which is yeah. a very diverse city. Well, um, yeah, well. so you've you, you you have you have this issue then, and then it's like, well, if you're not white, why would you want to go to a service where everybody just seems to be so white when you get there because they're not going to understand some of your issues?
0: Yeah,
2: um, th- that's why, what... the reason I, sorry. Yeah, no, it
0: was it was just at that point, which is why I, uh, what I was saying around the engagement, uh, you know, you you you've just kind of summarized my feelings for about ten years. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. So that's what I mean. Like everyone's part of the conversation. We just have to tackle the subject. You know, be the subject matter needs to be addressed rather than it being distracting and going on to other 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 areas.
2: I think that there's there's better people mm. who can speak about that
0: yeah. yeah
2: from and I understand that there's there's maybe some some value to having somebody as pale as I am on a conversation like that <laughs> in the fact that it's the more people, experienced the people who are saying it's just it's just uh, people saying their own their own things, so talk I can see where there's a value there, but i I can think of lots of people who would be much better to speak to Mm -hmm. that as a topic. Um, And I, I think the, what we should be doing is amplifying people's voices as much as possible wherever we can. And that's the same with sort of people who use drugs. It's, you know, what we should be doing is we're really bad at the moment in the UK of amplifying drug user voices. We're really good at amplifying the voices of people in recovery. Um, but people who actually use drugs were really bad at amplifying their voices in fact a lot of drug use organisations closed down um, once the coalition government came in because funding that they'd been getting to help them stopped and because they'd suddenly been given all of this funding by the previous government they'd stopped looking at ways of funding themselves like they used to and they became really bad at surviving that. And, you know, we need to be amplifying voices, not having... I, I, I understand where there's a value for people like me spouting off. But I can think of, in most cases, people I think your listeners would far, far prefer listening to.
0: Yeah, I, I, I you know, I think just clarifying my point, which was, i think it's not necessarily asking people um to speak on uh, you know on racial issues if they're a different ethnicity or it's more about uh, where i see the value is to include have those people but have those people as well uh, in the conversation of experience you can see like you've epitomized you've uh, you know you've summarized my experiences for 10 years and if somebody like yourself can see it and, and come up with a recommendation or what do you think, you know, what works around the world you've experienced and seen in there, I think that's the, th- that's the trick. If we don't utilize people like yourself, then the very arguments that you were making at the beginning of this conversation about you know, we're going to lose people into different sectors and all that, you know, it will happen in front of our eyes. And I think that's really important that how people shouldn't just downplay their role um, you know, and the experiences what they can still bring in um, while they can, and um, you know, I've seen. You know, you've you've got these all these other projects that you run on. You know, y- your hands, your high risk spaces. You've talked about HIT. You've got such a wealth of knowledge that I think it's almost criminal in not having you involved in some way, shape, or form. I'm going to take that smirk as a, as an agreement. So anyway, m- moving. On. <laughs> um just coming towards the end of this nigel um what do you you know what are the some of the things that you're working on now um anything that you want to plug on here anything that we can you know that you want people involved with or any upcoming projects that you need uh, support on what what can you tell us a little bit about that
2: I've barely moved off my sofa this year. Um, last year was last year was supposed to be a really busy year for me. I was I had photo projects around the world. I was going to be going to Puerto Rico and doing three different photo projects there over a couple of weeks. I was, you know, I had loads of stuff planned for last year. Uh, most of my passion at the moment is in the photography side of stuff, so portraiture. I'd be really interested to do a project photographing. Um, harm reduction activists in the UK that I don't already know about. Um, so if people can come forward and like say, you know, I'm, I'm happy for you to come and photograph me doing work or sitting in my house or just going on a dog walk, um, you know, that would be good. There's There's a project that I started about three years ago that has been on hold a little while that I want to start getting back to. And this is going to sound really... It's, a, it's. I don't think I'm going to succeed in this project. But the idea of the project is we talk a lot in things like harm reduction about the philosophy of harm reduction. And everybody nods as if they understand exactly what that means. Like I'm, you're I'm doing not, at the moment. I'm
0: only nodding because I've seen the project start on Instagram. If yeah I think it's the same one so I'm not um, actually know what I'm talking about on this one
2: um, so we, we talk about this philosophy of harm reduction as if we know what that means and uh, I'm lucky in the fact that I've got a little bit of a understanding of some philosophy and I've got friends who have got a lot of understanding of philosophy. I've got friends who like you know, have written about uh, one friend who who wrote um, harm reduction as a Hellenistic philosophy kind of post-presentation and stuff. So what we've done is we've set up a website uh, called Harm Reduction Philosophy. And there's a questionnaire on that website trying to get a basic level of understanding of what people consider harm reduction to be. Whether or not they consider harm reduction to be a social justice thing, which I can tell you now from responses we've had, people in the UK don't. They don't consider it to have any link with social justice. People in the US think it's 100% a uh, social justice thing. Um, Whether or not they consider it just to be a practical thing or whether or not they consider it to have a philosophical element. And the ultimate goal is to write... A philosophy of harm reduction, in the same kind of way that the Stoics have their Stoic philosophy, mm. the um, the pragmatists had their pragmatic philosophy. To have a fully written philosophical statement that encapsulates harm reduction, I don't think it's possible. But
0: you've made a start, so got, it is possible.
2: Yeah. We've got, in the crew that I've, I've got looking at it, there's some wonderful people. And they're far, far cleverer than I am. I'm okay at the web design side of it. Um, they're really good at everything else. So they're the ones that helped put the questionnaire together. They're the ones that are going to go through the questionnaire because they understand statistics and they understand qualitative and quantitative and all of this sort of stuff that is above my intelligence level. Um, But yeah, the idea is I want to write the harm reduction philosophy. I mean, if I'm going to have a big goal when I'm 50, then that's a good one.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've been around the world, you've seen it, you've engaged with a lot of people, a lot of experiences, bringing it all together, you know, um, your reading skills as well and i'm sure your your interest in, and bringing in that collective I, I think you'll i think you'll do it i think you do it knowing knowing what you've already done so far and knowing that you're you know you big 50 i, I think you, done that yeah, yeah. well you say that you say that you say that okay is there anything else anything mm-hmm. else you want to plug any websites you no, want i plug? mean there's
2: there's things like, you know, I'm, I'm the editor on naloxone.org.uk if you want to find out about naloxone, the opiate antagonist. Um, there's my photography site, which is nigelbrunston.com. Um, and you can buy sort of print. Can you buy prints from there as well, directly? You can buy prints. At the yeah. moment, the prints that are up, it depends when this podcast goes down, but the, the prints, so there at the moment, some money goes to uh, Black Minds Matter um, for any of the prints that are bought at the moment and all of the prints of people of colour at the moment. I'm going to be changing what prints are available soon and it's going to be every few months I'm going to change what's available to buy on there. Um, but most of it is more about, you know, having sort of an outlet for that photography because my my issue isn't that... Um, my, my issue is more that people don't know who the hell I am when it comes to photography so it's it's not that I'd, I'm not bothered about making a load of money out of it, it's just like the people who I'm photographing are really important and it's in, they've, they're beautiful harm reduction folk and they're amazing people and I'd rather have that happen Yes, that people see who they are. So there's lots of there's lots of uh, updates on there and stuff. Um,
0: obviously nothing from the last year. Well, that that gives you another year's worth of work to put put together
2: to catch up on <laughs>
0: <laughs> to actually finish it. Yeah, I don't know what you mean. So yeah, all there's
2: that. But that's it.
0: All right. Thank you, Nigel. Really appreciate uh, you joining the ba- jumping on the bandwagon today. Um, I I'm sure we're gonna. Do this again, um, especially when you know, all those projects that you're saying or all the uh, attempts that you're going to be making, uh, we're we'll, we'll... definitely going to need those, uh, those catch-ups. So thank you again, Nigel.
2: Cool. Love you, man.